Okay, Pashas Vayeshev, Yud Ches Kislev. Yadzeit, Miriam Basib Yosef. She is dedicated to the Nishmosa. Also, so long as he's in the yard, and it's Chus, Yaakov Ben Adasa, Shev Fu Shalema. Pashas Vayeshev, Vayeshev Yaakov. He settled. He settled down. A new name for Miami Beach is Eretz Muguriyoviv. Because Bikish Yaakov Hashavetz B'Shalva, Yaakov wanted to retire. So he went to Eretz Muguriyoviv, so Eretz Muguriyoviv must mean Miami Beach. What else? I mean, the uh, you know the average age of Miami Beach is deceased, so we know that this is the general approach. Miami Beach is the people that came to retire. Davis tells Yaakov, though, there's no such animal. We don't retire. Because we don't retire, I'm going to show you that we don't retire. And he puts Yaakov through a rigorous, rigorous test. The Pasha goes on and talks about Yosef and his brothers. The animosity between the brothers and Yosef. Pasha moves on. And discusses the selling of Yosef. The sale of Yosef. Yosef ends out sold in Mitzrayim. Chavadina. Yosef ends up in Mitzrayim. And the end of the parasha tells us how Yosef ends up in prison in Mitzrayim. We have a guest tonight. The little man himself. But interestingly... The tailor does something, as we say in the world, the way of the world. The tailor takes a commercial, a commercial break in the middle of the story of Yosef. And the tailor tells us that Yehuda gets married, Yehuda has three sons. And Yehuda puts his first son under the chuppah. The first son under the chuppah, the son dies. The second son then goes to the same wife and teaches us now of a halacha called Yibum. 
Many years ago, Yang Yisrael in New York, all camps have their own activities, their own ways, the things they do in camp. We had one day, one kufa in the camp, for three days in a row it was raining. Now in sleepaway camp, you need your baseball fields, you need your basketball courts, outdoors, you need your outdoor swimming, you need, you need it because this is what keeps the kids occupied. There's learning classes in the morning, learning classes in the afternoon, and there's breakfast, lunch and supper, which take time also because there's always singing and benching, and but you need your activities. Now there's arts and crafts, which usually were indoors, and there were indoor games, one or two, board games maybe there was a inside they played hockey in the shul but generally after one day after two days of that shamem <laughs> you stop watching <coughs> father I got to Brazil okay yeah. and uh, on the third day we were on the verge of uh, having a riot I mean the kids were going off their minds they were going stir crazy Nebuch so we came up with a Vivaldic idea on the second, after the second day of it, at night we were sitting, we realized where we were heading, and we realized the kids probably weren't going to sleep at night, they couldn't go to sleep, they didn't let off their energy by day, they were going nuts. So a beautiful decision came up, that each bunk is going to make the next day halachas kids. Bring a second plate for that. Yes, I will. Thank you. Halachas kids. What's a halacha skit? Halacha skit is that they're going to have to put together a little play, a little skit. And in this skit, they're going to have to bring out a certain halacha. Now, the novelty behind this is <coughs> nobody was told what halacha they had to bring out. You choose your halacha. Have your halacha. Thank you. So the morning activity was spent preparing. Every bunk was in their bunkhouse in their secret preparing their halacha skit with their halacha that nobody knew what was. And in the afternoon two activities we went to the shul and each bunk put on their skit. Now, needless to say, it was interesting because everybody knew that I had to go up next or before or whatever, and I wanted everybody to be quiet. But my skits obviously stayed quiet for their skit. So it was very interesting how they, at that 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 year, those days, they still had that minor sense of uh, sensitivity. You, this man bears gifts. <laughs> So the, and of course the winner, the bunk that had the most uh, original idea and brought it out the best, was awarded um, a watermelon or something, which in those days was a big thing. You got a whole watermelon for your bunk. It was exciting. Um, yeah, we're talking like '76, yeah, 1976. And um, before we even thought of gray hairs, I was actually talking to somebody this morning, a friend of mine. I'm going into a tangent on a tangent that 
recently he's been not well. He had a heart condition and uh, he had surgery on his heart, and then he had a hernia. And, and, and it's you know, and he, the days of yore in camp, this guy—I mean, this guy did everything. He was really you know, anything for a laugh, and he was really a, a power of a person. And this Shabbos, he was coming to shul. He didn't feel well. He so didn't feel. He turned back around. He went home and went back into bed and stayed in bed a whole Shabbos. And this is so not like him. And I said to him, "Could you imagine thirty years ago? Would you ever have thought that we'd be so vulnerable today?" So he says, "Honestly, no. <coughs> thirty years ago, we thought we were invincible. We didn't have to sleep nights." We were able to smoke cigarettes. We were able to, to drink until the wee hours of the morning. We were able to, 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 what didn't we do? Where didn't we go? Our counterparts in the college was swallowing goldfish and chewing our light bulbs. And we were, uh, we were doing learnathons, thons or, or other little crazy things that we did, like putting candles on other people's metal chairs. Um, Kitzer, we had to come up with our original halacha, and you had to bring out your halacha as well. So, I chose the most abstract halacha I could possibly think of, which was a chalitza. Now, mind you, I had 12-year-old, 11-year-old campers, I don't know, 11 or 12-year-old campers for the life of them had no idea what I was talking about. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting around a table. Now people who probably have very little idea what I'm talking about. There is a halacha. That if a person marries a woman, and they do not have children, and the man dies. The husband's brother, according to the Torah, has an obligation to marry this woman to carry on his brother's name. That's what the Torah tells us. This is called Hilchas Yivum. He becomes the Yevama. She becomes the Yevama, and he's Miyavim the Yevama. What happens if he doesn't want to marry this woman? How do you get out of this? One way is to die. Guy, American fellow that was in Australia for a few days, got into a car accident woke up in a hospital and the nurse is standing over him and she says to him did you come in here to die? and he says I hope not um, one is, is to die and one is to uh, marry her or another solution that the tailor came up with is called chalitza chalitza is a very degrading process mind you guy puts on a shoe with a lot of lace, a long boot they have a special chalitza boot and there's a long thing, and after tie, he unties it, and the woman spits in the boot and throws it in his face. It's horrific. It's very debilitating. But a man who doesn't want to carry on his brother's name, this is his punishment. So we chose, I chose Al Capone Chalitza. And this kid opened up with a two fellows sitting across from each other, and they're having lunch or whatever. And this fellow's wife, apparently they're brothers, and this fellow, one of them is married to this woman who is a real, what we call in America, a klafta. 
and she was taking his kishkas out for every little thing, making his life miserable. It's fine, I get kicked a lot worse than that. And um, it was a horrific situation. And the brothers watching this marriage, and the flying plants are flying, and plates are flying. <coughs> it's bitter. Finally, she starts screaming at him, yelling him, chasing him around with a frying pan, her husband. And he's begging, the brother-in-law's begging, please don't, 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 don't hurt him, don't hurt him, please, please don't, 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 don't. If you kill him, I'm finished, I, I'll have to marry you. And lo and behold, she bops him on the head with a frying pan and kills him. Kids are, the guy's lying there on the floor, and the, the woman is so happy, and the brother's crying, not that his brother's dead. Not that his poor brother's never and killed. He's crying that now he has to marry her. He says, what's going to become of me? What's going to be of me? And all of a sudden you hear from the side of the stage, and this kid came jumping out with a Superman cape on. And on his cape he had a big ches, and on his chest he had a big ches. And he said, Chalitza man! And Chalitza man came out, and the boy was was amazing, this kid. He stood there and explained the whole process of a Chalitza. And he said, that, my friend, is your solution. And the judges were on the floor. They could not even, they couldn't even <laughs> listen to the guy's whole speech. The way the kid came jumping out, the man, it just killed, the whole camp was just hysterical. Well, they didn't know what the mitzvah was going to be. Like yeah, nobody, nobody knew what the mitzvah was. No, you had to, you had to bring out your mitzvah so everybody knew what it was. <laughs> that was, that was another part of the whole thing. And this is an amazing thing, Right? Gorgeous. And I don't want anyone to think what they're listening to on the internet over here. My grandson is here and he's just listening to the sheer with more attention than anyone has ever listened to any of my shears. I really am mesmerized by him. Um, Yehuda, therefore, having one son die on Tamar. Whatever the reason was, learn your local chitas and your daily chitas and figure for yourself. Whew. And the second son dies. And then Tamar takes herself off. When Tamar takes herself off, we're going to go in later what happened, what transpires, Yehuda meets up with her, etc., etc., now this story is interjected in Pashas by Yeshev in the middle of the whole happening with Yosef. Yosef gets taken by his brothers, brutally beaten and thrown into a pit. His garment is taken from him. He's sold like down the river, down the Swanee River. And he ends up in Egypt and boom, and all of a sudden the terror goes cold. We go cold on the trail and we go to a different scene entirely. We go from Vayakumu Kabanam Khabanesis and Achmei, everybody was Menachem Oval. Yaakov tears his garment, everybody comes to give condolences, and he moves on in life. They sold him down to Pare, to Patifar, and he's gone. And the next post starts by Hiba Isahiba and Yehuda Meisachov. Yehuda wandered off, married, had children. What's the commercial break? 
What's going on here all of a sudden is break Yehuda and the story of Yehuda and Tamar and Yehuda's marriage and Yehuda's children. We're going to learn further parshas, Vayichi Yaakov actually, that Yaakov ultimately does settle down. Yaakov ultimately does get some peace and quiet in his life, and that's the last 17 years of his life that he settles in Egypt. Now interestingly, Yosef HaTzadik is sold at the age of 17 as well. So the 17 years that he has with Yosef and the 17 years in Mitzrayim were Yaakov's best years of his life. If anyone's good, quick at math over here, do the numerical, the Gematria of Ayachi. My brain is fried and I can't do that right now. But it's very likely you'll come up with 34. Because Ayachi Yaakov, Yaakov lived 34 years 17 with Yosef before and 17 with Yosef at the end of his life and that was his 34 best years of his life. Now let us go into what similarities did Yaakov and Yosef actually have. Rashi, who talks to our Ben Chamesh the Mikra, tells us of several similarities. One of which is that his brothers hated him and his brothers hated him. Yosef hated Yaakov and Yosef's brothers hated him. You get older, you get smarter. I was always told, you'll get get older, you'll understand something. I'm sure everybody knows of the message that tells us that Yosef and Rashi Yosef, excuse me, and Yaakov were both born Mo. They both were born with, they already had this. They were both born circumcised. Yeah. Moshe was also, Moshe Ben was also born circumcised. Happens. They have to make it bleed. They don't make a regular bridge, they just make a regular bleed. We spoke last week. Yaakov tells Esav, Yesh li Sheva Chamer. Sheva Chamer? And he said, His shor is, is Yosef. And Yosef is compared to Sher, but Yosef was the power that was able to stand up to Esau. But the Torah tells us here, Eile Teilus Yaakov, Yosef. These are the children of Yaakov, and it says Yosef. He had 12 sons here. Eile Teilus Yaakov is Yosef. What happened? Where did we get lost? (coughs) 
Rashi tries to tell the Chumash Shemikha what exactly is going on, what exactly is transpiring. But at the end of the day, Yosef was Yaakov's appeasement to success. When Yaakov saw Yosef, he knew, oh, I have now someone who's going to carry on my name. They were all tzaddikim. They were all righteous. But Yosef was ben zikunim hulo. He was a ben zikunim. The ben zikunim here didn't just mean that he was old. It was that he now saw that somebody was able to carry on his legacy. Yosef be the one that would carry on his legacy. So therefore when he comes now, Zakim Baba Yamim, he waited many, many years for just this moment when Yosef would be born. And he would continue his Zavid in the world. We know that Yaakov was the one that ultimately did the most repair on the damage done by Chet Sadas. He elevated the most sparks that came down that were destroyed at the time. Avram's Chesed, Yitzchak, with Givura, each did their own Aveda. But it's Yaakov ultimately that brings about the main stay of what had to happen here. And the main thing that Esav had against Yaakov actually was the concept of Amuna. Yaakov had such belief in God, Esav could not tolerate this. And when it says, the children were fighting within their mother's womb, the word Habbonim is Gematria HaEmunah. They were fighting over the concept of Emunah. Esav could not tolerate how much Emunah Yaakov had. And this is the main foundation of what has to happen. This is the main foundation of the problems that we have with the world the nations around us. The nations of the world can't tolerate, they have zero, zero tolerance to the Emunah of the Eden. And when they turn around and they say, I've the story a million times of the little girls that were playing every day. One was religious and one wasn't. But one was Jewish and one was not. And the non-Jewish girl had a bicycle and the Jewish one didn't. And one day the non-Jewish girl said, you know, I let you every day play with my bicycle. But you always talk about your God, your God, your God. Why don't you pray to God to give you a bicycle? Leave me alone. She said, okay, I will. And the next day she comes to borrow her bicycle. And the guy says to the Jew, he says, I don't understand. Didn't you pray to God? She said, yeah. Ha! Well, your God didn't answer you. He says, he answered me. He says, why are you taking my bicycle again? He says, because he told me no. He answered. She said, no. But the fact is, we have a Muna. Maminim ibn Maminim. And we ask. And we believe that we ask, and we're going to fulfill, we'll get fulfilled what we ask. There are two mainstay f- services of Yaakov Avinu. The main elevation of the sparks that he did, of the sparks that came about, that, that came, that were destroyed and needed to be elevated with the sin of the tree of knowledge, the Chet Tzadas. <laughs> 
And again, like we said, the main thing of the conquering of the Jewish nation over the, the nations of the world as far as emuna and belief in God. And therefore Yosef carried on just this very legacy. And because Yosef carried on this very legacy, this is something that Yaakov now found. He found soles. See, now that we needed that for. He found soles in the fact that Yosef now was born, and Yosef was now in the world. And this is why he gave him so much yachasi, that's why he gave him so much love, and so much caring, and so much devotion, more than the rest of his children. Chassidus explains to us the many different approaches, the many different attitudes that Yaakov had towards Yosef. Up to even the Ksenis Pasim, the garment that he buys him special, different than the rest of his brothers. Even the brothers who were, as we said before, all Sadiqim, could not tolerate the amount of spirituality Yasef emanated. And because of that, and they knew that was ultimately the connection between the father and Yasef. So either they wanted to test it and to see how far they could push it, how many buttons they can push, or they simply did not, they couldn't bear it. It was even no matter how much Kedusha one bears, you can't always sit side by side with another one that's so holy. The story of a very funny story about Shema Kodesh, where he came to a Bismedish, not a Bismedish, and they were sitting and learning. And everybody, pack, 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 they were sitting and learning. And he said, I can't walk in here. So why can't you walk in? Because generally when a person learns the Shem Shemayim, he learns for God's sake, terror elevates to God. When a person learns for himself, the terror stays down. These people are all so conceited and learning for themselves, I can't get into the room. No way to walk in. This is something that the... Although there, there is a concept, Mishnah Mishnah tells us, of kinat safrim. The jealousy of one, one Talmud Chachim of the other. And the Mishnah tells us, kinat safrim ma When a person is jealous, how much the other guy knows, there's one or two things you can do. You sabotage him which if a person is a God-fearing person is not going to do, or downright you just try to do better than him. Now, this is a wonderful Mishnah, and the idea is, is amazing, and the idea is so true. Unfortunately, we're dealing today in an era where that doesn't work. If someone sees someone else succeeding, they don't try harder to succeed better than the other, but instead they try to get one of them to sabotage it's, this is a, a man-eat-man world. And it's come to a point where the world looks back and says, you know, it's acceptable. It's acceptable. That guy's restaurant is more successful than mine. 
So I have a few different things, solutions to it. I can increase things on my menu. I can bring in more chefs and improve the taste of my food. I can bring in more professional waiters. I can make a better ambiance. I could make better lighting. I could make a better... Whatever you want to make the place smell better, whatever I can do to improve this place. And therefore, I can undercut him in price even, maybe. Or maybe even stay up to par with price, but not go higher than him in price, and compete. Or, I can send the health department, and I can sell the board of cashers, and I can send this, I can, I can make this guy's life miserable like he never saw in his life. In, in Brooklyn, there was actually two butchers not far from each other. And um, one of them always managed to take care of their, their customers. <laughs> they always saw to it that the price was better, the quality of their meat was better. They would get meat killed within three days. And they would devein and kosher on the spot, on the premises. And this, of course, is a lot of cost-effective. It's cost-effective if you have the right staff, and you know what you're doing, and you know how to do it, etc., etc. It becomes cost-effective, and since your price is better, and your price, and your quality is better, so obviously you're doing a good business. These guys were, let's say, on... They were seven blocks away from each other. Look at these numbers. Don't want anyone to know what, where, and where I'm even talking about. The other store did just that. They spent more time spreading rumors about the other place, sending inspectors, and sending than they spent on, on, on working on their own business a day. Most of their hours a day, they were busy and occupied. How can we destroy the other place? And they figured the only way they're going to be able to sell anything is if they destroy the other place. It was just, just ludicrous. The In Albany, Albany, New York, our capital, there is a an office for kosher products. And they have inspectors who come down and check the kosher places to make sure that everything there is in order. Now, this first butcher used to get a lot, a lot of inspections. They usually come once a year, maximum twice a year, if you're doing a very big turnover. This guy, every second month there was something. <laughs> and every time we asked the inspector, why are you here again? There were reports. Reports. So they have to come and follow up the reports. And the inspector at the time was banking. He must have gotten a good bribe from the other place. He was banking on the fact that the um, first place would fall for the, the citations he's giving. He'd write up the most ludicrous citations in the, in the world of kosher. Which, if anyone knows the halacha, can, can get this guy in big trouble. And um, 
And the reason I know about it is because I got called from these people. And they said, do me a favor, come down here, we want to show you this. I came down, I checked out their operation, and I told them, listen, I can't give you a certification in the store. Not my job. I also can't uh, certify the slaughtering because I'm never there. I was never by any of your slaughterhouses. On the, but he's not giving you any citations for that. He's giving you citations for what goes on here in the store. The process that's going on here in the store, there's no problem with. And I took the citations, and this is interesting because this must be a story of <laughs> at least 15 years ago. I was a relatively young smarkach at the time. And I took the liberty of calling the inspector. There's numbers on it. I said, my dear Mr. Inspector, he's a Jewish guy, a religious Jewish guy. My dear Mr. Inspector, you're a from fellow. And I'm a from fellow. I'm not telling you my name. And I'm not telling you my, my status, my title. I'm not telling you anything. I will tell you one thing. That Albany is going to receive within 36 hours a letter with all the footnotes halakhically showing the fraudulent summonses that you wrote up. It's a violation that you wrote up here. You're going to have to answer to authorities for this. And you have nothing to tell them except for that you must have been bored off to write these things up or drunk. Mm. I'm not threatening you. I just feel bad that a Jew should lose his job. I would consider, if I were you, coming back and seeing to it that all these violations disappear quick. What are you talking about? How could you say this to me? Who do you think you are? I said, I don't have to think who I am. There's no caller ID on the phone that you're calling, that I'm calling you to. You have no idea who I am. You will when my letter comes through. Because there it'll have my name and my title and everything else. I am not calling you now as a title. I'm calling you as a friend, a Jew to a Jew. Get the violations out you know none of them are real. He says, listen, Rabbi, he tells me, I said, I didn't tell you I was a rabbi. Just do it. I left the store. About three hours later, four hours later, they called me up and they told me everything was torn up. This is one way of doing things. Destroy somebody else and you can think you can live on. It doesn't go this way. That people get killed by Af and Chema means anger, but Af also means a nose. And this is today's problem with Shidduchim, where the people come and they say, Oh, I have a Shidduch. Who's the Shidduch? And they mention the name. And the people go, Eh. They move with their nose to the right or to the left, boom, the whole Shidduch's over. <laughs> Didn't say anything. You don't say a word, just moved your nose the wrong way. The guy said, Oh, in that case, I'm not interested. I saw something actually two days ago on 
COL live on our internet sites. I mean, I have to be on internet with my shear, and I have to put up about the Blava Malka on the internet. So every so often we go on COL live. I saw something that made the hair ter- stand up on the back of my neck. CH Malava Malka. CH Malava Malka, I don't remember, at something or other, maybe at AOL, whatever it is that you. Is an organization now that has Malava Malkas for the Bavitsha singles, 25 years and up, boys and girls. And they seek to try to arrange Shadduchim that way, by the boy and the girl seeing each other there and introducing them there. Now, if this is done under rabbinical supervision, and it's done with the utmost sneers, I'm sure it is, I'm very happy to hear that someone's actually taking such a motivation, such a step forward to help the uh, shit of crisis, which we are, to say the least, Obama can't make a financial problem like we have a shit problem. And he knows how to make a financial problem, believe me. I mean, uh, Obama has figured out the solution to longevity in America. He figured out how to make all the Americans live long. He opened up a very, very big funeral home. And since everything else around here goes bankrupt, so they're going to have to go to bankrupt too. The only way they can go bankrupt is people stop dying. The Shidduch situation is horrific. It's a nightmare what's going on in the community. In Lubavitch at large, and it's not only Lubavitch, the whole world is having the problem. All the circles, every circle is having a problem today with Shidduchim. Children are never chachmanal, it's like getting older and older, and it's just sick. Is this a solution to all of a sudden break down a barrier of hundreds of years of, of Flumkeit, and Yiddishkeit, and Chassidishkeit? Unless there's a very good rabbi that's on top of this, I don't know who, who's condoning it. Pasuk tells us a very interesting happening here at the end of the parsha. We want to get back yet to Yehud and Tamar, and I wanted to make a scene, but since we don't have a minion, we're not going to do it. Yehud, excuse me, not, before we get to Yehud and Tamar, we come to the the nightmare of the story: Yosef and Patifa's wife. Patifa's wife, as many other women in Mitzrayim, it says when Yosef used to come in. There's a servant, and the women were sitting and peeling apples or oranges with their knives. They would, they were so mesmerized by the beauty of Yosef, they'd start peeling their fingers, and they didn't even know it. They were so mesmerized, they just kept peeling. Eishes Petifar was not any less um, insect with him. And we know that she tried very, very many times to bring him to her. <laughs> After this happened, she picked up her eyes, she raised up her eyes to Yosef. She said to him, Come sleep with me. Now, famous story. Thank you. You don't know the story. I really did not want to have to tell it. There was a Balkaira that had a terrible problem. When you're reading the Torah in the shul, 
there's always some sharks in the shul that are trying to catch you on a mistake. You come to 770, and if you ever hear the guy make a mistake, you have never heard more of a vicious and a malicious bark than the people that caught him. And they're screaming at him like, like, like he tried to steal the kesser off the Sefer Terror. And it's, it's, it's pretty bad. But it happens in every show. And um, I know the guys, they teach Bermitzvah boys, they tell them the same thing, they tell the kids, don't worry, you're going to have the old man that's going to be barking at you the whole Don't worry about him, leave him alone. <laughs> um, there was one such bakera who had the biggest dilemma of them all. It wasn't Chaim, a Tadris, a Shmero, correcting him every Shabbos. It was a lady in the Viber show. And she was always right. Every week she caught him by a different mistake. This was as humiliating as it gets. Came to Pash Vayeshev. And he said, it's time for revenge. And he came to this Pasuk and he said, Vatemer Shechava Imoi. And she started to scream from the lady section. She correcting him. <laughs> okay. You know what she said? Okay, anyway. All right. Oh, Pinchas, we start at nine. <laughs> you are definitely, no, this is definitely, you get credit for getting it. We never, as a matter of fact, we're going to go another hour just for you. Anyway, the Basic tells us that Yosef, though, <laughs> ah, <laughs> he held himself by Yemen and he said, Elisha Sadeinov. Now the trap on the word Vayimo'ein is a shalshelis. A shalshelis is three times. Shalshelis is the way you hear it. Shalshelet. Which is named Vayimo'ein. It's three pozes. What is the triple of the word Vayimo'ein? Vayimo'ein is an acronym. Is a Rosh Tevis. Vayar Yosef Mare Oviv Negdoi. Yosef was in front of Aisha's Patifar and she was trying to get him to come to her and he withheld himself. Why? First of all, because Yosef saw the picture of his father before him. And this made him freeze. Then, the picture spoke to him. If you, God forbid, sin with this woman, you're going to be erased from the breastplate of the Kohen, Kohen Gadol. That's twice the acronym of Ayimoin. And finally, Vayira Yosef Yosef was frightened to desecrate his soul. This is therefore the three times the acronym of the word Vayimo'en which ultimately brought about Yosef to withhold, to restrain from doing this sin, God forbid. And the Trap is telling us that it's three times Vayimo'en to teach us these three things.
Now, I actually printed it out for everybody. There should be enough copies for everybody. You can cut it up. For those who want to remember those three acronyms. Buster continues. A nanu gadol babaya says this. Someone has to cut them up because there's four on a page. Mimani v'lechasach v'mimani v'uma k'yemesach y'ashayishtay Finally he says, Yesus says, V'eich eseh haroa g'doyla hazoyiz How can I do this terrible thing? V'chatasi l'elikim and I've sinned before God. Finally she turns to him and she says, V'yihi k'dabra Yesus y'ayneim V'yishama elay didn't hear, listen to her, Rashi says, what's Lishkav Etzla and Liyaz Imo? Lishkav Etzla says, don't, let's not do anything. Just lie here next to me. And Liyaz Imo, Rashi says, L'Elam Haba, in the world to come. What was she thinking? First of all, what value is it for her to just lie down next to her? And even more so, where does she think she's getting into Elam Haba together with Yosef in the world to come with Yosef Atzadik? Listen, my children, and you shall hear. Chassidim have a tendency to not appreciate, shall we say, the uh, sometimes um, eccentric of the Mislagdom. I don't know how true it is. Chassidim used to say <laughs> in the Mahzer of Yom Kippur from the Mislagdom before Al-Khait before a person bangs their heart on all the confessions it says in little words Kan Eisim Avedek you do a small Avera now, before you start this, so you should have what to do tshuva for. Mm-hmm. We're so pure. Well, how can we say Al-Khait, we never did an Avera? So do a little sin now. It's derived from this Pasuk. She says to him as follows, Yasef, you have a problem. You are a pure tzaddik. You've done everything right. You've done every mitzvah. Except for one mitzvah. What mitzvah are you lacking? You're lacking the mitzvah of tshuva. Why did you never do tshuva? Because you never did Navera. So, she asked him... Lishka come do just a little Avera with me. Memela, liyes ima. Memela, she will share Elam Haba with him because she's giving him the opportunity to do this little Avera so that he can immediately do Tshuva by repenting. So now he has done every mitzvah possible, including the mitzvah of Tshuva. And he's good to go. Since she's the instrument, she was instrumental in helping him with this, she would go with Elam Haba with him. Yesus says, listen here, lady. 
Eich esarog deilazis. If I'm going to do already an aveda, harog deila. I have to do such a big one. I'm only going to do a small one. I'm not going to do something so big. V'chatosi leleikim. What's the translation of v'chatosi? I've already sinned. Not v'echte. I will sin. V'chatosi. I've already sinned. Where did Yosef sin? Yosef sinned by speaking Lashon Hara about his brothers. Powerful. Powerful. The Yosef... Oh my gosh, who took the clock away from us? I didn't say anything yet. I didn't talk about Yitesh Kisar. I didn't talk about... Eh? Wow! Yosef is telling us that he has been torn from perfect because he spoke Lashon Hara. How great is the sin of Lashon Hara? How severe, rather, is the sin of Lashon Hara? And the truth of the matter is, he did not speak Lashon Hara. The truth is, he came to his father and expressed to his father things that the brothers had done, but none of them were intent for Lashon Hara. It wasn't with malintent that he said these words. He said these things only to improve his brothers and to help his brothers. And so that the father should guide them in the proper way. But Yosef said, no. I spoke against another Jew. This is a tremendous level which we all have to try to ascertain. Never to speak against another Jew. It's a phenomenal level. I want to tell you a quick story although I'm going in overtime tonight's my grandmother's yard site like everyone can say the Chaim my grandmother was a survivor but she didn't go through the ultimate tortures of the concentration camps but she was always on the run she was given this intuition to always move before the Nazis. Wherever the Nazis were coming, she left before they got there. They lived in a town called Zagush, which was a resort, a vacation resort, quite a beautiful town. They had the only house in the town with running hot and cold water. And she knew, and the Germans in Machshimon, when they came into the town, they took over that house. That was their headquarters in the area. I got today a story. I always told you, every speaker has, on the way to the, on the, way to the show tonight, I got a uh, funny thing happened to me on the way to the show, you know, whatever. I got a story today which is I found very touching. During World War II, the Germans in Machshom came into a Polish town. They lined up all the women. And they told the women, take what you want, because you're not coming back here. Whatever you have, take with you, you're not coming back to this town. In Machshom, the Polisher were not much more sympathetic. And they stood there salivating, waiting for the Jews to get out of the town so they could just pillage their houses. 
And they did just that. They took their properties, they took their houses, they took the, whatever was not tied down, whatever even was tied down, they took everything. When a Jew came back after the war, the Polish had chased them away with sticks. Said, no, this is mine, you never lived here. There's one particular woman, a very, very big coat, a precious and valuable fur coat, like this. And the Polish women saw this woman with this big coat, and they said, nah, she's not going out with that. No way. That's, that's a big catch. Two women jumped on her, and they grabbed her coat away from her, never. And they pulled it away, and the woman tried to scream, but the Germans said, get away. Coat was heavy. And lo and behold, they opened the coat, and they found jewelry, candlesticks, now, my grandmother Shalom had this result as well. She had coat pockets full, and she used to use these things during the war to go. She had to bribe, sold, whatever it is. This woman had never, she had herself fully prepared. She took whatever she could out of the house. And they unloaded everything. These two Polish women were sitting there with their booty. And they picked up the coat to take the coat. Now it was a fancy, beautiful coat. Was still too heavy. Not my regular coat doesn't weigh like this. They started pushing and pulling, and they found a secret packet. In the secret packet was an infant, a baby girl. One of the Polish told her, told the other one, "I'm an old lady." I don't have any children. I'm not going to have. You take everything else, I want the baby. And the other one was more than happy she had kids. She's rich, why not? And the deal went. They took the girl. And they raised her. The girl never knew different. They brought her up. They sent her to school. She was bright. She was quick. She went through school. She went through medical school. She became a pediatrician. As a pediatrician, her mother, what she thought was her mother, was an old lady already. She took sick and died. Pagan. She pagan. A few days after the old lady pegged, another old lady came along, who she knew, knew her mother. And the old lady tells the pediatrician, young lady, don't cry for that lady. She's not your mother. So what are you talking about? Ever since infant, I remember this woman is my mother. She wasn't your mother. She told her a story. She told her she's Jewish. They didn't even know what the word meant. She says, go to your mother's jewelry box. There you'll find a necklace with funny writing on it. That was your necklace when you were an infant. She told her the whole story, how they found her in the coat and everything else. 
you were wearing that necklace when we found you. She went and she found this necklace with writing that she could not describe. She could not figure out what it was. She had the chain enlarged and she put it on and she started to wear it. She was in Europe and she met two Lubavitcher boys. And she told them her story. She told them her story. Shmulik, Ken's game on the Fitz Mail name. And she told the boys the story. So the boys wrote to the Rebbe. She didn't know what to do about it. What, what does it mean? What is it? She wrote, they wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe immediately answered that it's obviously a true story and that you are indeed Jewish. That being the case, why are you in Europe helping non-Jews? You belong in Israel helping Jewish children. On Kanshayla, she picked herself up as per the Rebbe's instructions. She went to Israel. She started practicing pediatrics and learning about Yiddishkeit, married a nice from fellow, and started raising a beautiful family. The story would be beautiful at that point, but it has an ending. The famous attack on the Sabaro, on the restaurant, This doctor was walking with his, her husband and children not far away from this restaurant. When she heard the blast, they knew what it was. They, Israel, unfortunately, everybody knows when they hear a blast what's going on. And everybody else runs. She also ran. She told her husband, you run that way home with the kids. I'm running that way to the, to the bomb. To the doctor. And she ran and she was helping and she was putting things together and she got patients and she ended up in the hospital with patients. And there's an old man there. He looked and he looked and I was crying. My ankle, my ankle, my granddaughter, my granddaughter, I was with her. We got separated. I don't know what happened to her. So calm down, she says. Tagirli, tell me, describe to me. What does she look like? What is so he described the baby and he said to her, she has a... I don't know if he said that she is wearing a necklace. He said to her a description. Lo and behold, they find the little girl. And the doctor looks at the girl and looks at the necklace the girl is wearing and freezes. And she turns to the old man and she says, where did you buy this necklace? He says, I didn't buy the necklace. I'm a goldsmith. I made this for my two daughters when they were babies. Her mother gave it to her when she was born. And the other sister never didn't make it through the war. She was 
when she took out the necklace and showed her father the necklace. My grandmother, Shalom Zeicher, to bring many, many orphans to America or to feed them. She brought them, she, they, my, grand, my father, Shalom, would tell us that the orphans got food before they got. Came at night, there were orphans always in the house. And there was just barely enough food for the orphans, they got the food and they went to sleep hungry. They never resented it, they never said to us, don't do that to your kids. And she had many schusen. Amongst the schusen, the Rebbe let her come in whenever she wanted to talk to him. She had a problem with somebody else's problem, not her problem. And she wanted to come daven for somebody. She would stand in the Ganeid Natacht in the Rebbe's outside chamber. And the Rebbe would come back from davening or from wherever he's coming. The Rebbe would walk past her, unlock his door. And the Rebbe would hold the door open for her to come in. The Rebbe would close the door stand by the door, talk to her, they would open the door for her again to leave. We came in together, my parents, my grandparents, my grandmother, and as soon as we walked in, the Rebbe looked up at my grandmother and said, going to sit down, and she would always say, the Rebbe says, I'm not going to sit in front of him. This happened every time, apparently, I've heard from my father, from my uncles. Every time she came in, the same conversation went down. Well, the Rebbe Sinhech sit down, and, the Rebbe said, and my grandmother would say, I would not sit in front of the Rebbe. She stood up the whole time? She stood. Whenever she was in front of the Rebbe, she stood. No matter how, and she suffered on her feet terribly. So I would say the Chaim. This is, unfortunately... To show you, Mlav Malka did not go too well. This is what I have left over from the bottle. Nobody was drinking it, except for me. This was my little bottle. I should have put a sussy on it. I would have gotten further. Penny, are you driving? I will say for you. Give it Avi. Chaim, Chaim, Miriam, Basrav Yasef, Shamash Aramaliyah. And just like she prayed for us then, she should pray for us today, and she should continue praying for all of us. And all she wanted was Mashiach. Chaim.